Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, and this is a show where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics, and we do it from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today's guest will be heard as usual across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Returning to Dr. Doctor today is Dr. Dave Kaminskis, a cardiologist in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Yeah, we should say returning for one of many times, uh, Dr. Dave Kaminskis. He's uh, he's really graced us with his sage wisdom on multiple episodes, our astute listeners will remember. So, you know, we can't have a cardiologist on and not talk a little bit about cardiology. Uh, he's going to talk to us about the disease, but just some stuff about the specialty that I think some of the listeners may find interesting. I mean, to begin, cardiology is the study and the treatment disorders and diseases of the heart and our blood vessels. That's pretty straightforward. Um, it's actually a subspecialty of what's called internal medicine. And our vocabulary, you and I, Tom, are used to it, but our right. listeners may find it <laughs> confusing. Uh, and it, it can get confusing because a cardiologist is not a heart surgeon. That's no, that called a, a cardiac, cardiac surgeon. Yeah, cardiac yeah. surgeon. Or right. sometimes cardiothoracic surgeon. Exactly. A cardiologist specializes in diagnosing and treating diseases of, as I said, the cardiovascular system. Things like hypertension, in my case, uh, rhythm problems, you know, arrhythmias, as we call them, maybe heart failure uh, and the like. And to make it a little more confusing, some cardiologists also do procedures, not really what we would call surgeries, but they do procedures. Most people have heard of heart catheterizations where they put tubes in the large blood vessels, usually in the groin, that go all the way up into the heart. They can place pacemakers. Uh, they can even change heart valves, do some pretty amazing things through that, um, that little incision in the groin. Now, a cardiac surgeon is somebody who subspecializes in treating surgical diseases of the heart. Um, they do training in general surgery, and then they go on to do cardiac surgery. They do what most of us know as open heart surgery. Uh, but if we go back to Dr. Kamenskis and cardiology, cardiologist, the road to becoming one of these guys begins with medical school, just like you and I did, typically four years. And then they do a, a three-year residency in internal medicine, or what you might call general medicine. And then they do what we call, and we've used this phrase before, a fellowship in cardiology for at least three additional years, more years in some cases. Um, so at least 10 years of training after completing college to become a cardiologist. We're really building Dr. Kaminskis up to the audience here. <laughs> he better say some brilliant things after all of this. Uh, but these no guys are dedicated yes. <laughs> to go to school that long. They're very dedicated. Uh, so if it takes that long to being a cardiologist, there probably aren't many of them around, right? Eh, not exactly. Um, if we try to put it in comparison to sort of doctor types that most of our listeners would recognize, emergency medicine physicians in 2020, almost 60,000. Uh, radiologists, just shy of 50,000. OBGYNs like me, only 43,000. But cardiologists, only 33,000. And of course, dermatologists, about yeah. 5,000. <laughs> no, there's more than that. <laughs> there's got to be more than That's that. That's what the data said. So it takes a long time to complete all this training. Wow. Cardiologists, except for Dr. Dave, they must be really old, right? <laughs> um, you know, we wanted to get back and do just a, a hard medical topic, you know, that affects right. your health. And so we thought, well, heart disease and why? Oh. Well, I went online and uh, found a bunch of raw data from the CDC that I added up together. And in 2020, the year of COVID, mm. um, there were 355,000 deaths due to COVID in the U.S., but that was still number three. Number mm. two was cancer and number one, heart disease. Almost twice as many deaths from heart disease, about 680,000 than, um, than from COVID and more than any other cause. Yeah, to say that in percentages, so about 21% of all deaths from heart disease, about 18% from cancer, all the way down to 11% uh, for COVID. Now, listeners, that is in no way intended to suggest that 
the, the hundreds of thousands of deaths that have occurred from COVID are in any way insignificant or less significant, but it is always important, especially when we're thinking about public health, uh, to keep these ratios in mind. Um, the number one killer of Americans is heart disease. It's always been that way. It probably always will be that way, I suppose. And what's interesting is that um, many people with heart disease had to delay their treatment. Mm. So it's been shown that certain types of heart disease actually got worse on average compared to the previous year because of the delays that happened in the spring when hospitals were only open, in, open for a limited number of diagnoses. Right. Very frustrating. Um, you know, I used to be on the dark side, as we say, I used to be a hospital administrator. <laughs> um, and we had a saying in the hospital world, uh, we would say bones and hearts fund the parts. Uh, <laughs> and that's to say cardiology and cardiac disease and orthopedic disease. There's so much revenue that comes in to a hospital that allows hospitals to do things that are not very revenue centric are not very profitable, like in my case, uh, deliver babies. So that's something that, that people don't always think about when they see hospitals opening heart, heart surgery centers and especially orthopedic centers. It's just part of the economics uh, of hospitals that allow them to stay afloat. And so with Dave, there are a number of different types of heart disease we get to talk about. And, and the main one we'll probably talk about is coronary artery disease. You know, mm. what leads to, you know, heart attacks, uh, to sudden cardiac death, but there are a number of other things and he will be able to wax eloquent on any number of them. And I'm sure he'll be able to tell us a couple of key things that all of us can do uh, to decrease the probability of us becoming part of that 21% and being a cardiovascular death in 2021. Amen. And, you know, before we head into our interview with Dave, we've got our medical trivia question of the day. And this one, category history of medicine, is actually a test to see how well you were listening to the last episode Dave recorded on high blood pressure. That was back in 2019, a long time ago. I remember we actually recorded that in the office, I think, where you are now sitting, Chris. <laughs> or it's one of your offices. You've got, you've got multiple offices now. So what British physician published a book in 1628 that first described the work of the heart as a pump that circulates blood throughout the body and receives it back again? Because before that time... People thought the heart was literally the seat of the soul, and they didn't know what it had to do with the rest of the body. But this British guy figured it out. You'll have to hang on till the end of the show to find out the answer, but we'll be back with our guest Dave Kaminstis here on Dr. Doctor after the break. And welcome back to Dr. Doctor with our special returning guest, Dr. Dave Kaminskis, a cardiologist from Fort Wayne, Indiana. He trained at the Ohio State University, just to the east of those of us who live in Indiana. Uh, and we are so happy to have Dave back with us again. Dave, welcome back to Dr. Doctor. Well, thanks so much. I've been looking forward to doing this again. So we talked a little bit about cardiologists uh, before you joined us. So now we'll move on. <laughs> Instead of talking about you as a specialist, we'll talk about uh, cardiology, I suppose, as a little more. Now, I learned in residency that the heart's function was to supply blood to the uterus, um, but perhaps it has other functions. <laughs> I'll, yield, I'll yield that. Uh, but how is the heart similar to and different from any other muscle in the body? Well, uh, that's a very important point that the heart is indeed a muscle. But the peripheral muscles, you know, they, they kind of work on demand. You kind of got to move your legs, got to move your arms. But the heart, I mean, the heart is beating all the time. And it's a really bad thing if the heart stops beating. I mean, if the muscle <laughs> decides to give out, it's all <laughs> over. You know? So so the heart is, uh, is such an important muscle. Uh, and the most important muscle in the body, in fact. Now, so, not to be not to be too sciency, but you know, if your bicep, you can only flex your bicep some fixed number of times, and it will fail. Uh, but yet, the heart starts beating at just you know shortly after conception, and doesn't stop beating until hopefully our natural death. How is that even possible? Why doesn't it fatigue and tire like any other muscle in the body? 
Yeah, that is a great question, but it has to do with the, the cells, the myocytes. They're, they're just different than any other place in the body. So they, they just they just gain energy very quickly and can fire off very quickly. But there are some similarities, you know, to uh, peripheral muscles. Uh, uh, athletes, for example, their their hearts get stronger. They might get a little bit bigger. They might get a little bit thicker. And, and those are okay things when you're a, a world-class athlete. But um, if, if you have to pump blood, if your heart has to pump blood against like really high blood pressure, the heart can really get thick and a real significant abnormal thickness of the heart is not good. So Dave, where did this whole idea of the Valentine shaped heart come from? Because the heart isn't shaped anything like that, is it? No, uh, it, it really isn't. And, uh, you know, it, it, there's a lot of different stories here, but, but some of it actually goes back to, uh, a plant and the plant seed that looked like a, like a, a Valentine heart. It actually was a, a herb called sylphium and it goes back even before uh, Christ. Uh, so that's where that's where the Valentine's heart really came from, and then it's been modified over the years. And but uh, it really does not look like that. In fact, it's so romantic; it's shaped like a fist, right? I mean, how yeah, romantic yeah. can you get? Uh, yeah. Okay, now going down the wrong path here. Um, but, <laughs> but, but, if, but if you look at a chest X-ray, you know when I look at a chest X-ray. It really looks more like a boot, you know. It really does a little more like a boot, even like a, maybe a little bit like a like a raindrop. But yeah, I'm sorry, it doesn't look like a Valentine's. <laughs> well, let's settle, let's settle this trivia question once and for all for our listeners. Where left side, right side, in the middle, behind the breastbone? Where exactly is the heart in our chest? Okay, so for most people, uh, the heart uh, is partially behind the breastbone. But then it goes to the left of the of the sternum or the breastbone. So so you might have just a little bit of the heart, maybe a, a little bit to the right of the sternum, maybe, you know, like a few millimeters. But most of the heart is below the breastbone and then to the left. And it's kind of between the left, you know, the, the left breast and the sternum. That's where it is on the left side. So the heart has its own blood vessels. It seems weird that the muscle that's pumping blood everywhere else has its own blood vessels. But what is its blood vessel system like? Oh, the coronary arteries are, are absolutely key and they have such high flow and they need very high flow because they have to get all this energy and oxygen to, to the heart muscle so it can beat continuously. So the coronary arteries are on the outside of the heart uh, and then they dive into the, to the heart muscle and, uh, and that's how the heart keeps going. So Dave, to, to review sort of the flow, so blood leaves the heart through the big giant vessel, the aorta, and it goes to the brain and the body. But those coronary arteries, they actually come off that big giant vessel, right? And go yeah. back and feed the pump. Just just a, a, a centimeter or so above the heart is where the coronary arteries come off. And uh, so it's really a very short system where the, the heart pumps the blood out and then it sounds kind of crazy, but then the, the blood it pumps out actually is is going through the coronary arteries as well and nourishing the heart. But it, it gets the best, doesn't it? I mean it gets <laughs> oh, yeah. it gets the it gets the prime product before anybody else has a shot at it. Uh, you got it. That's why the, are, are, are these arteries different than other arteries in the body? Yeah, they they are. And um uh for some reason, <laughs> which nobody can quite figure out. Uh, the coronary arteries can get diseased uh, much easier than a lot of the other arteries of the body. And that's, that, you know, that, that's how you started head, head down the path of restricting your flow and, and heart attacks and that kind of thing. Well, you, that's a good segue. Uh, we shared a few statistics before you joined us about heart disease being the number one cause of death in 2020, double the amount of deaths caused by, uh, by coronavirus. Why is it still the number one cause of death? I mean, is it true, doctor, that you cardiologists just haven't figured out what's going on? Or, or why is a heart disease me, still the me, number one cause of death? Oh, oh, let me just tell you, we figured out what's going on, but nobody listens to us. No. <laughs> what, what? Did you say something, Dave? Is he talking, Chris? Yes. Yes, I am. So um, uh, I'll tell you, um, 
you know, a hundred years ago, it was infections. I mean, uh, and, and we figured out infections with antibiotics and now we even have antivirals. So, so uh, finally heart disease took over and it has to do with, with bad habits. It really does. I mean, the, it, it has to do with, with people that don't eat right. Uh, they don't exercise, they get overweight. And then unfortunately, you know, uh, years ago, uh, you know, the use of tobacco really, really spiked during the world wars and that just really increased heart disease big time. So looking back at the heart itself, is it influenced at all by the nervous system or is it a lone wolf acting on its own? Ah, uh, well, the heart is very much automatic. That's for sure. Uh, but it does, it is connected to the nervous system. So the answer is both. And, uh, Basically, the heart has its own electrical system. It's it's just really amazing, and it's you're born with your own pacemaker. It's called the SA node, and so this this group of cells just knows to fire off, and it's the leader of the pack, if you will. And it fires off at a regular rate, and then electricity goes down through the rest of the electrical system and makes the heart actually beat. So it kind of like fires off, and and and. Uh, uh, and and if you lose if you lose that pacemaker that you're born with called the SA node, then some other cells have to take over. And if they don't, you start having slow heart rhythms, and that's why we put people. That's why we put pacemakers in people. Now Ooh, I just oh, thought of a trivia question I should have asked, so I'm going to ask oh, you, Dave. Oh my! In Lanciano, Italy, they have a Eucharistic miracle, and when that Eucharistic miracle was looked at under the microscope. Do you know what cells it contained? Uh, you just well, said it. It, it, it. The SA node. It was cells <laughs> from the <laughs> sinoatrial node of the heart. It was not only heart tissue, but it was pacemaker heart tissue. Just incredible. And it was blood type A, I believe, too. AB. Oh, AB. No kidding. Okay. Yes. Which is most common in the Middle East. Uh -huh. Anyway. I digress. Wow. That, that, that was an amazing comment. Uh, so, um, so the the heart is connected to the nervous system too, and and the, the one of the key connections is the vagus nerve. The vagus nerve comes out of the brain stem and heads down to a lot of different organs, including the heart. So, if this vagus nerve uh, can get overstimulated and understimulated, but but it can it can tell the heart to speed up and to slow down if you're resting or sleeping. It tells the heart to really, t you know, relax, go slow. And then if you're scared or anxious, you know, it, it, it can really uh, crank up the heart rate and and uh, and basically help supply more blood to the rest of the body. Yeah, you know, some of our listeners will remember when we had Dr. Kevin Majors on, a really brilliant psychiatrist. He talked a lot about focusing uh, on breathing and the chest and that feeling in our chest and deep breaths to slow the heart rate through interactions with the vagus nerve, yeah. um, which is really pretty fascinating to hear you talk about it and then to think about from an anxiety mm -hmm. standpoint. But Dave, uh, you define people as being no longer alive as a cardiologist when the heart stops beating. Um, if that connection to the brain is, is lost, um, well, the, the heart will stop beating and that brings about the definition of our death, doesn't it? Yeah, it can, but unfortunately, it's not that clear cut because even though people can be pronounced brain dead, and it might actually be close to true or really true, uh, the, you know, the heart can keep on beating for for days, weeks, and occasionally even months. So it's just not that cut and dry. Yeah, I think we think about in the movies when we see someone rush to a person and listen for a a heart a heartbeat or feel for a pulse and it's absent and they pronounce the person as, as no longer living. Um, but it isn't quite yeah. that clear cut, is it? Well, I mean, when, but when the heart's, you know, when your heart stops beating and you stop breathing, you are dead unless you get resuscitated. Ah, exactly. So Dave, heart disease, the number one heart disease cause of death is coronary artery disease. The, the what should we know that, about that? Why is it so common in the United States? Well, we, we really got to go back to, uh, you know, to all the risk factors. And, and uh, we're just not doing a very good job in the United States. Um, so 
our diet has been corrupted over the over many decades, but it's really been corrupted probably in the last 50, 60 years with the fast food, uh, the uh, fatty diet, uh, lots of red meat. So the diet is, is big. Uh, and then we have this epidemic of diabetes uh, and diabetes uh, really causes a lot of problems with, with the coronary arteries and fatty deposits. Uh, so diabetes is a big risk factor. And then we don't control blood pressure. And then we have people that smoke. And, and uh, so it has a lot to do with all these various risk factors that we could be doing a better job on. But, but a lot of the other types of heart disease, you, you know, it, it, most, most of the other types of heart disease, it's not really your fault. But with coronary heart disease, a lot of times it is. I mean, th th that's why we talk about modifiable risk factors. So if we think of the coronary arteries as pipes that need to be kept open, what is it about these risk factors that affect the inside of these pipes? Yeah, uh, it, it's, it's really pretty complicated, but... Uh, uh, Let's say you're, you know, you you eat a, a, a poor diet and then you smoke and uh, uh, and the, the smoking has toxins that that basically harm the inside of the arteries called endothelium, kind of the, the, the way the arteries are paved. And then and then the, the fat that you eat can get into these arteries and start building up as plaque and eventually start closing these arteries off. So. Let's go to what happens when w these pipes are plugged. We get what's called a myocardial infarction. Why is a heart attack called that? Uh, it, it's caused that because the heart actually dies. The piece of the heart, the muscles actually die. And, and the, the, the heart attack scenario is very interesting. Um, the first thing that happens is you start getting narrow blood vessels with cholesterol and fatty plaques. And you get these little plaques that, that kind of get worse with time. And eventually, right before a heart attack, usually hours or days or maybe weeks, the plaque ruptures and the endothelium is broken and, and it causes little clots to form. And so the last thing that happens when you have a heart attack is on the plaque, that ruptured and is unstable, a clot forms, and that closes the artery completely. Now you have a piece of the heart muscle that no longer is getting blood flow. And at that moment is when you get the severe chest pain and the heart attack symptoms, and that's when the damage starts occurring. I'll bet most listeners would be surprised to learn that a heart attack happens as a result of a blood clot. Yes. Um, it's just yes. not intuitive. Let me tell you something. I was I was training when that was all figured out. You know, I mean that was really that was really in the late nineteen seventies where they started doing angiograms during a heart attack, and they they took angiograms and and occasionally they would actually catch the artery opening and watch the clot run down the artery. It, it was truly amazing. So that's when we started using strong blood thinners to break up this clot. But let me just talk about a little bit more about the plaque. I mean. Um, it doesn't always happen to somebody that has a 70 or 80 or 90% blockage at the clot form. So you can have a new fatty plaque in the coronary artery that's only 30%. And if that's the one that gets unstable and ruptures, a clot can form on that one. And that's why it is so difficult to predict who's going to have a heart attack. You, you hear these stories. Oh, he had a treadmill test a month earlier. Why didn't I pick it up? Well, guess what? Yeah. <laughs> they already might have had a 30% blockage a month earlier, and it, wasn't gonna, it wasn't going to pick it up. But yet the plaque ruptured, and then the clot formed, and it went from 30% to 100%. Mm -hmm. And now the guy has a heart attack. And that's why, you know, stress testing has lost favor, because it just doesn't predict the future very much. So, so Dave, what happens in a heart attack? Keep going with that. And now that story that you were telling, so we have the blood clot that stops blood flow. So anything downstream of that clot now is without blood. And that means that piece of the heart is without oxygen. What happens next? Yeah. So, so, you know, the heart first gets injured. And then if the, if it doesn't get oxygen within a certain amount of time and that, it, it, it that can be variable, but it's usually in the two, three, four hour range that if you don't get the the uh, the vessel open and blood flow returning, that you have permanent damage. But there are many exceptions to that because some people, 
have these little connections called collaterals, and they can their artery closes, but but let's say it's the it's it's this certain branch called the LAD. Well, the right coronary artery might have these little feeders that go over and can kind of take over and supply supply blood. So some people are lucky enough to close an artery and never have a heart attack because they have these collaterals and feeders. Hmm. But when you have a heart attack, you know, uh, usually have severe symptoms, and we've learned that we just we just rush, rush, rush to the cath lab and and open up that artery with a stent immediately and as quick as we possibly can. Does exercise we, build collaterals? There, there really isn't any evidence of that. Um, it, 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 they do not. There's no evidence for that. Um, and the young people that have heart attacks, um, they typically don't have collaterals. It's, it's, the, it's the older people that sometimes develop them. Uh, what, what tends to develop collaterals is ischemia, lack of blood flow. So if your artery closes really slowly over, over many months or years, you, you, you're actually conditioning the heart to try to try to help you out and build these little feeders in there. So, so, so that's kind of why, uh, some, some of the biggest heart attacks we see are in young people that just acutely rupture a plaque, form a clot, and, and within a couple hours, they could have massive damage. Now, you've said the word plaque several times, Dave, uh, and our listeners are probably thinking, that's something I get fixed at the dentist. But um, <laughs> what do you mean when you say plaque? Yeah, well, the, the, the dental plaque is made up of bacteria and fungi and, and uh, oh, saliva, food deposits. And, and the plaque that's in coronary arteries is, is really a mixture of, of cholesterol and various types of fats that are in the blood. Uh, and so it's a different type of plaque. And, it's a lot and softer. It is a lot softer. And in fact, guess what? It's the new soft plaques that are most vulnerable to causing a heart attack. A plaque that is harder and been there for a long time uh, is less likely to cause a heart attack. And that's something that, that few really understand, you know. So that's going to be a great segue to our first question after the break here on Dr. Doctor when we come back with Dr. Dave Kaminskis on heart disease. We're back with Dr. Dave Kaminskis and we're continuing with an idea we just had on plaque. He said soft plaque is the bad plaque. Hard plaque is at less risky for a heart attack. So this brings up this whole question. They advertise these calcium heart scans. What are those? Who should do them? Are they any good? Yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of the, of the heart scans uh, to try to inform us whether or not you're at significant risk or not uh, for a heart attack. And so the sweet spot for, for those scans is probably people that are in their 50s and 60s, but anywhere from maybe 40 to 70. So uh, let's just say your dad had a heart attack at 55 and, you know, you're 48, 50, you're saying, you're saying you know, I'm a little worried about that. My dad had a heart attack at 55. How am I doing? You know, and, and people come in and ask me that. And I say, look, Let's do a coronary calcium scan. And what happens is the first thing that happens is people develop plaque. And then within a few years, specks of calcium start forming inside the plaque. So, so somebody that's forming plaque after plaque is forming little specks of calcium after calcium. And you can actually uh, add up how much calcium is in the coronary arteries and get a number. And that number helps tell you what the risk is. So if you're 40 or 50 or even 60 and get a calcium scan, you want it to come back a big fat zero. That's what you want. You want to see a zero there. And if you have a zero, your chance of having a heart attack over the next five years is very close to zero. It's, it's almost unheard of. To, so, so we talk about the, the, the soft fatty plaque, but, but if you're doing soft fatty plaque after plaque for years, you're going to have more and more calcium. So it's a marker to tell you how you're doing. So that's should that be, you said five years, should that be repeated every five years to pick, uh, pick up change or how does one, how does one interpret that going forward? Oh, I'm, I'm so glad you asked that question. So first of all, um, if, if you have a diagnosis of coronary artery disease, you had bypass surgery, you had a stent put in, you had a heart attack, your calcium score is going to be very high. And these tests don't mean anything to you. You already know you have a problem, so don't get one. But I've had a few people do that, spend their money. Um, but then uh, uh, 
you know, you 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 want to know where you stand with with the with the calcium score. And so let's say you get a number of 200. That's that tells you you're you're placking up. You need to do some things differently. Uh, you know, and and at 200, uh, almost all the cardiologists would recommend going on cholesteroloic medicine. In fact, the guidelines pretty much say if you hit 100 or above, you should be on cholesteroloic medicines. So if you're a zero though, and you want to see if uh, you want to see, well, how am I doing five years later? It's very reasonable to, to do another one. But if you're 200 or 400 or 500, I guarantee you that that it continues to go up. And it, and, it, and and monitoring it after you hit a certain threshold of a couple hundred isn't worth it because it goes up 20 or 30 or 40 points every year, even if you do everything right. So it's good. It's good to know where you stand. If you're a zero, yeah, do it in five years because if you're 100 or 200 at that point, you're starting to lose the battle. Something changed. Oh, okay. So, That's yeah. so Dave, yeah. I, you know, as you know, I did one of these scans. And I didn't really have any risk factors. I exercise like like crazy. I eat well. My cholesterol is good. My blood pressure is low. But I had a score of like 110. How much of that is hereditary and how much is is not? Yeah, well, in your case, I'd have to bet that a lot of that probably is is hereditary. Um, sometimes we never really figure out why it is. <laughs> I hate to say this, but it also can just be bad luck. You know, it just so happens right. that that's the that that's the way it is, you know? Um, but boy, there, yeah, but see, that's why it's an additive thing. I mean, you can, you can do, you can do a, do a risk calculator, which we'll get into, um, to tell what your risk is over 10 years. But if you add a calcium score and let's say, it's, let's say uh, you've been told you're low risk, but you get a calcium score that's 200 and you're 50 years old, you're on your way. And, and so now's the time to do things differently and right. to try to reduce your risk. Well, and one thing that you mentioned that I'd never would have thought of because I had good cholesterol was to get it even lower. So I, I think they have asked roomfuls of cardiologists, yes, such things do occur, How what percentage of them are on a lipid-lowering agent, on a statin? And it's an amazing percentage, isn't it? Yeah, it's actually three out of four cardiologists take a statin. <laughs> and you know, I, I'll go on record right now to tell you, I've been taking one for... Uh, at least 15 years because I, I know how it low, lowers risk and uh, and I want my cholesterol as low as possible. Here's another little tidbit. It's never been proven yet you can lower the cholesterol too much. So if somebody uh, gets a calcium scan and their score is 400, that's, you know, I mean, they, they're placking up and they say, but doctor, my cholesterol is 140. And you know what? It's too high for them you're still placking up and you have a normal cholesterol. So right. you should lower it to a hundred. I mean, you should, and there's been no adverse effects of lowering the cholesterol. And the, and of course we're trying to lower the LDL, which is the bad cholesterol. So Dave, I'm going to put you on the spot here. I see a lot of patients who want and need to lose weight, uh, particularly in my fertility practice. And they'll eat these really high fat, uh, low to no carb diets. But then occasionally I find some of them that have borderline elevated cholesterols, even in young people. And, and the question becomes, is it better for you to lose weight by eating what seems to be counterintuitive? If you have high cholesterol, it seems not a great idea to be eating bacon four times a day. Um, <laughs> but how do you, how do you respond to those people and, and the keto diet craze? Okay. Well, I try to explain to my patients, and I am—I do like the keto diet, but what I tell my patients is you need to eat a healthy keto diet. Mm. So, so, so those that say, well, you know, I could eat bacon and eggs and steak all day long. No, you, you need to pick up healthy proteins, you know, and so eat more fish and eat more salmon um, and, and, and maybe, you know, substitute chicken for the red meat. So, so I, I, I still think that, that a good way to lose weight is to crank up the protein and reduce the carbohydrates. No, no doubt about that. Mm. And if I see somebody that's really massively overweight and maybe they've just been diagnosed with diabetes, I think weight loss is so important that I'm willing to give them a little bit of leeway to, I, I think weight loss is so important to say, okay, you know, have a little bit of red meat, but at least try to eat reasonably healthy with with the fish and the chicken and the nuts and, you know, other, other protein sources that are good. So Dave, that's a good point. So if our listeners, they're, they're feeling 
convicted right about now, and they say, I want to reduce my risk of having a heart attack. Um, give, give them the best advice we can across the board. Okay, well, we've just been talking about diet, but just to say this, you've heard a lot about plant-based diet in the last decade, and, and as much plant-based diet as you can eat with vegetables and fruits and everything and minimizing, you know, minimizing uh, uh, the proteins, especially, you know, red meat is so important. But you need to throw exercise in there. That's just a, a, such an important risk factor or, or important. It's, it's a risk factor if you don't exercise. So you, you counter that with, with a lot of exercise or, or as much exercise as you can handle. Now, the ACC says, 150 minutes of exercise a week. Okay, that's it. Comes out to about 40 minutes four times a week is 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 the goal. Um, so exercise is key. Now, you know, I have such a tough time with smokers. You know, I try to I try to give them as much compassion as I can. I try to help them through quitting, but it does drive me crazy when somebody has a heart attack. And I know smoking probably was the number one risk factor, and they still don't quit. I mean, it's an awful, awful addiction. It really is. So exercise, lose weight, stop smoking if you do. Would those be your top three? Well, you got to throw you got to you got to throw uh, control of blood pressure. I mean, it, it's 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 such a it's such an easy factor to control. You know, you get your blood pressure checked; it's high. That we we have, you know, dozens and dozens of cheap, effective medicines. So if you have high blood pressure and you know, about three out of every four people has high blood pressure at age 70. You've got to get good blood pressure control. So Dave, earlier, I think Chris mentioned these uh, risk factor assessments, these different tests. Can you recommend a place online where people can do this to assess their risk of heart attack? Uh, actually, yeah, there's there's all kinds of options, but the the one I I like the best is, and you know, there's an app for it, right? I mean, you can you yes. can get the get the app or just go online, but but the one I like the best is the, it's ASCVD. So it's arthrosclerotic cardiovascular disease. So ASCVD, and then it's risk estimator plus. So ASCVD, risk estimator plus. You can get that on almost any, any you know, you can buy it as an app or you can just go online and look that up and it's going to pop right up. And it will tell you what your risk is over 10 years. And we and 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 the American College of Cardiology suggests that if you get above seven point five percent chance of an event in ten years, you should strongly consider going on to cholesterol lowering medicine. Excellent so, advice. I think yeah. that's going to help our listeners a lot because these medicines are incredibly safe and incredibly cheap. In fact, I oh, just my. picked up my refill today. I had zero copay. That was amazing. That never happens. Well, no. along those lines, Dave, why is there sometimes almost uh, um, a cult-like opposition to the cholesterol medicines? How did they get that reputation? Boy, that's that is a good question. But I, I have to probably one out of every four or five patients that I try to put on a cholesterol-lowering medicine, which typically is a statin. They've been online and they've read all these awful side effects uh, <laughs> that they're going to die of liver failure and they're they're going their muscles are going to you know fade away and yes. so 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 here's the real score on 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 the statins. There's a five percent chance that you will get muscle pain, muscle aches, and and you, and you just won't feel good. And 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 a rare person that it's so bad that they can hardly move. But it's it's one out of so I tell people I said look. 19 out of 20 people that I give this medicine to aren't even going to know they're going to take this medicine. Don't even know that they're taking it. No side effects. So I, I just tell them, you know, and, and, and then, you know, I probably do get 5%. One out of 20 call me back and say, ah, I'm aching. You know, I'm aching all over. And and so, uh, you know, we try different medications or different statins. And, and, and sometimes people are statin intolerant. Mm -hmm. and, and, and then we go with an alternative uh, alternative medicine. Um, the other thing I want to say about about these medicines is that uh, I I get it all the time. Well, oh, it's going to kill my liver. The uh, the FDA probably close to ten years ago ten years ago actually withdrew their recommendation to even check liver function tests when you're on a, a statin because 
the chance of it affecting your liver significantly is about, you know, a one in 500,000. It's just so rare, you know, that it really causes damage. So, you know, we still check them if somebody, you know, thinks they're having trouble or there's some symptoms, but we don't routinely check them anymore. So Dave, let's save some lives here. What symptoms in their chest or arm or neck or face should someone not ignore and just try to tough out, but instead go to an emergency room or call 911? Okay. So, so the first thing I want to say is that most people do have warning signs before they have their heart attack. Not everybody, but most people do. And it's almost always exertionally induced chest discomfort. They're going to have tightness or pressure aching in the chest, and it's going to occur when they exercise or when they walk. And if you don't exercise, maybe, maybe the people that walk into the grocery store and they start saying, ah, my chest is a little tight when I walk through the grocery store. But when you start having a heart attack and you're unstable, it's going to be crushing, heavy pain in the chest. Commonly, it radiates to the neck or the shoulders and arms. Left arm more than right, but it can go to both arms. And then you're almost always short of breath. You frequently break out into a heavy sweat. Sometimes you have nausea. And if you have these symptoms for longer than about five minutes, you ought to be calling 911 and get into the emergency room because that is likely a heart attack. Wow. Great advice. Great advice. Besides... if we think we've talked a lot about heart attack and myocardial infarction, but one of the other common heart disease involves the rhythm system uh, and sort of bad rhythms. What should our listeners know about heart rhythm problems? Well, I, I get patients all the time that 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 come in with palpitations, and if if you feel your heart flutter a little bit a couple times a day for just a couple seconds, almost always that's nothing but a premature beat. And that usually is not anything real ominous, but I still see dozens of patients that, that, that have that. But if you feel your heart like speed up and with all the technology now, I have all kinds of people that come in with their smartwatch and say, Hey, I felt my heart race and my watch just told me I was going 170 beats a minute. Well, if that went on for minutes or even hours at a time, that's, that could be serious and you need to get that checked out. And then there's the number one arrhythmia that cardiologists see, atrial fibrillation. Mm. I mean, I must, I can't tell you how many cases a week I see for atrial fib. And basically, the top part of the heart goes out of rhythm, and it's an erratic, irregular rhythm. It almost always goes fast, and it most likely occurs in, in older people, not younger, but I still see people in their 30s and 40s that have AFib. So it usually does not last for a few seconds or a few minutes. You're usually out of rhythm for 20 minutes couple hours, half a day. So if you feel your heart jumping all over the place for hours at a time, you probably do have a, a significant arrhythmia and you should come see a cardiologist. Oh, good point. Thank you. And, yeah. then, and, then, the- you know, and then, you know, talk about what we call Brady arrhythmias, and that is when the heart goes too slow. And, and the presentation for people like that is they usually are getting sudden lightheadedness, dizziness, near passing out or passing out. And if you're if you're walking along feeling fine and all of a sudden you wake up on the floor, your heart probably stopped. I mean, that's the most likely explanation for that. You probably had a pause where your brain wasn't getting blood and you collapsed on the floor. So th- then then I just I did then there's thing thing called a faint or vasovagal syncope. And and so, you know, if you're if you're uh standing in line and get lightheaded and get sweaty, you know, sit down because you're probably just getting what we call vagal or getting ready to faint. You know, there's a big difference, but if you're doing great and all of a sudden you pass out suddenly without any warning, that is a serious thing. And you should see a cardiologist. Dave, in our last couple of minutes, what, what is one more heart disease that you want people to know about? Uh, I think valvular heart disease. Um, the, the, the two valves that almost always cause problems are the aortic valve and the mitral valve because they're on the left side of the heart. Um, and as people get older, the most common valve problem we see is aortic valve stenosis, which means the valve is getting narrowed with calcium deposits and thickening just because- Tell maybe, listeners where this valve is. Uh, it, it's the valve that opens up letting blood out of the heart. So it's right at the top of the heart. The pump It pumps it right out to the aorta. And you can go from having a, a nice big three and a half centimeter opening to like a 0.5 centimeter opening. And that's severe stenosis. And your mo- you, you, the symptom you're going to have 
is shortness of breath with activity. Almost always. That's going to be why you present to the doctor. I just can't do what I used to do. I'm short of breath all the time when I walk, you know, for one minute or something, you know. Mm. Then the other valve is the mitral valve. And the and mitral valve can start can start leaking. Uh, and then when the heart pumps, the blood's going backward to the lungs. And but where is the mitral valve for our listeners who don't know? So it's between the left atrium and the left ventricle. So when the left ventricle pumps, uh, the the blood goes back through the mitral valve into the left atrium. And the, and guess what? The presenting symptoms the same as aortic stenosis is shortness of breath. Valve problems almost always cause breathlessness with activity. So if you're having that, you might have a valve problem. Well, and we have another minute or so. What's a cardiomyopathy? We've heard of that, including some young athletes with COVID. Yeah, yeah. So a cardiomyopathy is a weakening weakening of the heart muscle, and um, believe it or not, uh, there are a high percentage of people that get this in their forties or fifties, where it's familial, it's genetic. Uh, we're seeing many. We've discovered that many more cardiomyopathies are genetic. And, and there's not much you can do about that other than when you, you know, when you get it, you treat it and, and we can do a lot with medicines, but then there's viral infections of the heart. It's called myocarditis. And that's what COVID can do. COVID can also attack the heart. Uh, and the virus actually, you know, hurts the heart and can make it weak. Usually with a good percentage of patients, it's just, it's going to get better again, but some people get permanent damage from a virus. Dave, so, Dave, <laughs> Tom and I are both thinking the same thing, Dave. Thank you so much uh, for joining us and sharing your many years uh, of experience uh, as a cardiologist. I know a lot of our listeners have probably seen you as patients, and they would love to thank you for your dedicated, uh, dedicated work as well. But thank you for joining us. we got to have you back again to talk more cardiology on a future episode of Dr. Doctor. Thank you, Dave. God bless you. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor. We really enjoyed the time we spent with our good friend, Dr. Dave Kaminskas. And now it's time to finish up the medical trivia question. So to remind you, what British physician published way back in 1628, the first described um, description, I should say, of the heart that pumps and circulates blood throughout the body and then takes it back again? And that was William Harvey, fellow of the Royal College of Physicians in England. He figured it out through work with animals, especially horses, that the heart is a pump and that the blood goes in a circuit around the body. Uh, but he was unable to prove that there was a connection between veins and arteries. But four years later, uh, another uh, scientist, Malpighi, uh, proved that. So ever since Dave Kaminskis has been in training, we have known that the heart circulates blood throughout the body. <laughs> Remarkable. The stuff that we take for granted today that not that long ago really wasn't yeah, quite amazing. so well. Well, Chris, um, what do you have for our top three takeaways of this episode? Yeah, you know, I think my top three takeaways I've condensed into one gigantic takeaway <laughs> um, with some parts. I mean, I found Dave's talk really inspiring in the sense that the number one cause of death, that is to say cardiovascular disease, is something that we can really impact the likelihood of it affecting us and our loved ones. Not so sure that could be said about cancer, right? You you make your living with cancer. Some right. of your some of your cancers are preventable with lifestyle things, but many cancers are just frankly bad luck, aren't they? Um, but the number one killer, uh, twenty one percent of the Americans who died in twenty twenty, we could do something about. And what's the take home, listeners? Write these things down. Eat a better diet that has less red meat that's more plant-based. If you're overweight, lose some weight. If you don't exercise, exercise about, you know, 40 minutes, three to four times a week. Nothing crazy. You don't have to run a marathon, but you can exercise. If you smoke, stop smoking. And last, but in no way least, if you have high blood pressure, get on a medicine and control your blood pressure. All of those things can significantly reduce the chance that you'll die of cardiovascular disease. That's really beautifully simple, isn't it? 
And, and that motivated me. I mean, a while ago, I went on one of these uh, sites for determining my risk of heart attack because my father had one, but not early. And I wanted to do everything I could to reduce it. And so I kept, you know, lowering my blood pressure you know, by, and uh, lowering my cholesterol until I got as low as I could get for my age on the risk factor because I want to be around here for my kids and my grandkids. So seeing that number motivated me. And Dave gave us a website or an app, actually, an app for that, ASCVD Risk Estimator Plus. Apparently, you can download for your smartphone, and he said maybe even for your computer. And calculate the risk of you having a, of a cardiovascular event uh, over the next 10 years, which a 10-year timetable is pretty, uh, pretty easy to sort of wrap your brain around. But, you know, I think some of our maybe more cynical listeners might say, oh, hogwash, everybody's got to die of something. I'm going to keep smoking and drinking and being overweight. That's true. All of us will die of something. But this is one of those somethings that we could put lower on the list instead of higher. And that puts a bow on it for this episode. Thanks for listening to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association, which comes to you from the virtual studios of Redeemer Radio on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. And please, we hope you'll check us out and spread the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend. Invite them to listen to us in their favorite podcast. Invite them uh, to check out our website, drdoctor.org, where you can also download uh, at no cost uh, any of our episodes. And while you're around uh, on those sites, review us for other listeners. And be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. This is Dr. Chris Stroud. We're signing off until your next episode of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-host or the Catholic Medical Association. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at drdoctor.org. Tune in for new episodes every Friday and find all our past episodes at drdoctor.org. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com.